0: We're in 2 Corinthians today. We have been doing kind of a series. We're going through 2 Corinthians, but it seems like every time I'm looking at a section to teach, I come up with like two words that kind of summarize the, the teaching. So today the words are pain and forgiveness. And we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. All right. And the wind might totally blow my notes away. We'll see. All right, right, Second Corinthians 2, verses 4 through 11. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order to not say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end I also wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. <clears throat> but one whom you forgive anything I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Let's pray. Thank you again, Heavenly Father, for today. Thank you for this time that we can study your word. And God, help us to know you more. Help us to be inspired to follow you. I thank you so much we can meet together. Help us to just really enjoy this time and feel your presence and, and feel like you, you, you taught us something today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I've been talking to you guys about kind of the the history behind this letter for some time now. And um, I've mentioned a couple of things. Um, This week, Paul is talking about what I've been referring to as the severe letter. So remember, Paul had originally spent 18 months when this church was planted with them. Then he moved on to planting other churches and going on missionary journeys. Um, Later on in Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians and that wasn't his first letter to them. Remember, they had written him, and he had written them before. He said in 1 Corinthians 5.9 about a letter he had already written them that we don't have with us anymore today. It wasn't circulated. But then he writes 1 Corinthians, and it's a response to two things. Number one, he heard some reports that they had some problems that he needed to address. But number two, they had asked him some questions he needed to respond to. So that was 1 Corinthians, and we believe Timothy delivered that to him since in 1 Corinthians 16 it says he's sending Timothy to the church. And then apparently Paul heard some more bad news about the church after that point, and it caused him to make a visit to them, which is often called the sorrowful visit, which we'll look at again as well. But after that sorrowful visit, he comes back and he writes them a letter, which Paul's referring to in today's text, that we call the severe letter. Something was going on in the church, he visited, it didn't go well, He wrote the severe letter, and we're going to see next week that this letter was delivered by Titus, and Paul was so anxious to find out how they were doing after that severe letter that he dropped all that he was doing in Troas, and he ran after them, or he went to find Titus, actually, who had delivered the letter. He ran to find Titus to figure out how did they receive the letter. And so this morning we're looking at that severe letter, and this is what Paul is talking about. It's the letter he wrote as a response to this bad report he had heard, and after this, this uh, sorrowful visit that he had with them. So before we get into it, just you know, uh, by means of reflection, there is a time to be severe. And there's also a time not to be severe. It takes wisdom to know the difference and it takes love to do it right. Really, if you take love out of the equation, you could end up at either end of that extreme if all you ever are is smiles and happiness and everything is fine nothing ever bothers you and positive words that isn't loving if you see somebody that's in trouble or doing a bad thing that's harming them or others and you can't say a negative word because you're just all smiles and positivity that's not loving the same time If all you ever do is say harsh words and just speak your mind as I just say what I think and if you don't like it, you can leave, that's also not loving. There is a real time to be harsh and there's a time not to be harsh. And again, it takes wisdom to know the difference and it takes love to do it right. And the good news is we have a God who has wisdom just waiting for us if we ask him in those times. What we see here from Paul, though, is a good example of what it looks like When you love somebody, but you have to give them a harsh word. He says, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. He didn't want to hurt them. It wasn't his intention to hurt them. But he wanted them to know how much he loved them, and real love meant sending them this severe letter. In this situation, he couldn't not address certain things. He had to do it, and it was going to be severe, and it was loving. It's like when a loving parent disciplines a child. Certain actions do require consequences. But that doesn't mean parents love punishing their kids. I do. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it's, it's hard. It, it hurts a parent when they have to discipline their child because no parent that's loves their children likes seeing them sad. But it's for their own goodness out of love. So how do we... Discipline someone or share a harsh word in love. Well, ask yourself, does it hurt? If you discipline a child out of anger, and instead of feeling hurt that you've had to discipline them, knowing it was for their good but not wanting to do it, if instead you felt, like, gratified, like you got your anger out, that isn't done in love. Or if you're a believer and you think you have to share a harsh word from somebody, if you don't feel like it's hurting you also to share that because you don't want to hurt them, but it's for their own good, if instead you feel like you're the better person because you shared it, and at least you're not to blame because you said the right thing, and it's now up to them just to deal with it, that's not in love. So Paul, with tears and in anguish, writing this letter, that's what it means when you love somebody, but you have to share a harsh word with them. But he didn't mean to hurt them. It was out of love. And so he says in verse 5, But if any has caused sorrow, he's caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order to not say too much to all of you. So again, he wasn't trying to make them sorrowful, but there was someone that did cause sorrow. And notice how Paul says, It wasn't sorrow to me, but it was sorrow to all of you. It's interesting here. So you might ask at this point, well, what is actually going on in this church? We've been hearing a lot about this sorrowful visit. There was some bad report and then some severe letter. But what's actually going on? Why did Paul actually visit? What was in that severe letter? And what is so bad that's causing Paul all this anguish? Well, we could speculate. We could say, for example... Any of the many issues Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians, maybe they hadn't listened and it had gotten worse. So maybe divisions were more severe now, or maybe immorality was more severe now, or maybe they were still suing each other, or maybe that one person that was caught in immorality hadn't been corrected and was still there living there in sin among them. Any of those things. At the same time, though, in this letter, it becomes obvious that Paul is spending a lot of time defending his apostolic ministry He's spending a lot of time talking against those that are questioning his motives or challenging his authority, confronting false teachers. Two of the three sections of this book are all dedicated to those themes. And so perhaps that's what Paul is talking about here. And in this verse, the fact that Paul says, there is someone who's causing sorrow, but not me, kind of indicates that those in the church might have assumed he had caused Paul sorrow. Because Paul's saying, it's not causing me sorrow. So you might get the idea that this might be what's going on as people in the church questioning Paul, questioning his authority. So he's saying, it didn't cause me sorrow, but it did cause all you sorrow. Why? Because Paul, being an apostle, having the right gospel, if somebody can challenge his authority and challenge his teaching, now the church is just broken and left open and vulnerable for all sorts of bad teaching. So it's actually going to cause them sorrow. So yeah, we could speculate about what the cause was. But look at this phrase Paul says, in order to not say too much. Why is Paul not saying too much? Paul obviously knew the details, right? The church knew the details. Why is he saying in order to not say too much? So I was reading a book this week about the New Testament. And it was talking about the culture in the first century. And the author began talking about the importance of family in the first century, and he made a lot of interesting points about how certain ways that families operated in the first century has neat correlations with how the New Testament talked about how we ought to treat one another as a family. So, for example, in first century families, um, sorry, lost my place, sibling rivalry wasn't tolerated because it was seen as a weakness. So there in in first century families, you didn't just have individuals with their own goals and they're all free to do their own goals. You also had a family and a history in your family and a reputation as a family and goals as a family. And everyone in that family saw it as their responsibility not just to aspire to great things for themselves, but also to fulfill the goals of their family. And so if you had civil Uh, sibling rivalry, that was seen as a weakness because if your family couldn't all stand together, your family as a whole wasn't as strong as it could be. And so it wasn't tolerated to have jealousy or rivalry amongst one another. Um, Also, there was typically a great trust between people in in the same family more so than with other families. And so like the phrase, blood is thicker than water, you know, that kind of thing. First century families had this sense of real strong trust in unity. They they trusted one another. Also, disagreements were to be handled in-house. So it was a shameful thing if you had a disagreement with a family member and that became public. You wouldn't want anyone else knowing about your family's affairs if something was wrong. Or if somebody in the family, if there was a dispute, you'd want to handle it in-house and not not go to others to let them handle it. And it's interesting how that all kind of correlates to things you can see in the Bible. Like, for example, through faith in Christ, we all, Jew or Gentile, we're all adopted into the same family of God, John 1, 12. So we're all one family. I just did the John Piper thing. Sorry, I did this. Have you guys seen those John Piper things? He'll hold my hand gestures. See, does this one. Sorry. Same family. Um, also, um, As such, we're heirs of the promises made to God's people. That's in Galatians 3. And so we're in the same family. We have this heritage, this history. And just like the first century family ideals, we are to trust and believe in one another. 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And disagreements are to be handled in-house as much as possible. Remember 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul's like, why are you guys going to court against, you can't solve your own issues? Don't you know we're going to judge the angels? He's like, handle it in-house. And so we can see a lot of these same, same things. And Philippians 2, 3 talks about not being rivalrous. Philippians 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. So you see a lot of these same kind of ideas. And so, in one sense, I would say I'm glad that Paul hasn't given us all the details for what happened in this church. It's very obvious that something serious was going on in this church. Something very detrimental was happening. It was on the brink of destruction. This church was going through a very hard season. And so Paul, with anguish and tears, making trips to see them, having sorrowful visits, writing severe letters. But we don't know about it. We don't get to know the details. And so I think God may have not inspired Paul to write those details, and Paul might have decided to not write those details because he knew this person causing this problem, causing this sorrow in the church, he believed God would restore them. And he didn't want them to have to live the rest of their days under the cloud of that problem that they caused. So this person that caused this issue in the church or these people, whatever it was, imagine if Paul had written this letter down on paper and the churches began circulating it and now that became known forever. It could be Paul thought, you know what? Grace is needed here. Let's not repeat these details. So in order to not say too much, because I want that person to be restored to God. And if they're restored, I don't want this cloud hanging over their head. So that's what I think. And I'm, I like that we don't have more details than that. So, but this person did get disciplined in verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Well, what, what, what was the punishment? Well, I think it was disfellowshipping. Because we know from, for example, Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a model of what to do. If somebody in the church begins to sin publicly, and you go to them privately, and they won't repent, but it's causing an issue, and so you bring a couple with you, he won't repent. The church then comes and says, listen, this is a, a big deal. You've got you to gotta fix this, and they still won't repent. They say, okay, then, then you, you have to not be coming to our church until this gets resolved because we believe this way. You're clearly living a different way. Our, our, Our beliefs aren't in line and you shouldn't be here until you can get that resolved. And Paul instructed Corinth to do that in 1 Corinthians 5. He asked them to do that to a certain person, but he said, so they might be saved in the day of the Lord. So the idea of, it, this whole idea of disfellowshipping wasn't a permanent judgment. It was a temporary, hopefully, thing. It was like a last resort. It's like if they won't listen to one person, if they won't listen to a few people, if they won't listen to the entire church, then they've got to leave. But hopefully that will be the tough love that causes them to recognize what they've lost and come back to the faith. And so it was a final measure out of love to say, we want you to be restored to God, but you're living in sin, so you can't be in our fellowship, but we're going to pray for you. We want you to come back. And so Paul had instructed them in 1 Corinthians 5 to do that. And here he says, this punishment was inflicted by the majority, which is the way you do it. If it gets to that point where a person, if they sin that much, they have to be leaving the church, then the church as a majority comes together and says, look, we love you, but you can't be here when you're doing this. So it's a majority decision. So I think that's what happened. That's not easy for anybody if that happens in a church. When someone's got to leave, it's painful for the person having to leave. It's painful for the church. It's painful for the leadership. And so, you know, the title this morning is called Pain and Forgiveness. And we've talked about a lot of different kinds of pain so far. The pain that Paul might have been caused by these people who were questioning him, maybe challenging his authority. Pain caused to the church by this kind of division, by this uprooting of their foundation. Pain caused to this person There's a lot of pain that's going on here. But now Paul begins to talk about forgiveness, which is the second part of the title. Paul says this punishment was sufficient. Nothing else must be done in terms of discipline as an individual than what's already been done. And so even though there are times to share a harsh word or to discipline somebody, that doesn't mean it lasts forever. So Paul says in verse 4, or sorry, verse 7, On the contrary, you should now rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So Paul wants them to now reach out to this person, to forgive them and comfort them, so they're not overwhelmed by sorrow. You know, it takes a lot of love not only to discipline, right, but also to see past your own feelings. This person questioning Paul deceiving the people that Paul cares about, causing all these problems. Paul says, He didn't cause me sorrow. It caused you sorrow. But now you should forgive them. They were disciplined. That was enough. You should forgive them now. He's been punished. But now Paul's concerned that this person might have too much exceeding sorrow if they're left out of fellowship for too long. And they might feel so bad and so guilty they might never return just out of shame so Paul says, But the one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything. If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so Paul says, forgive. And if you forgive them, I'll forgive them. Water under the bridge. Let's just forget about it. Despite all the bad they caused, all the hurt and the pain, we did call them out. They were disciplined, but look, go back to them now. Restore your love to them. Give them a chance to come back to you. Forgive them. Don't let it be overly severe. And then he says, So that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. And this is the final thought that I'll close with. You know, Satan is real. And he has schemes. He's called the enemy, the accuser, the liar, the adversary. 1 Peter 5.8 says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Luke 22.31, Jesus says to Peter, or Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He wants to destroy us, and he has schemes to do so. He is scheming to destroy you. Know that if there's a dispute among you and another believer, Satan is waiting with schemes. He likes that. He likes disputes. Unforgiveness gives him the opportunity. It's like unlocking your front door at night. Unforgiveness. Just giving him a way in. It gives him an advantage. You know, when someone hurts you really badly... If they come to you really sincerely apologizing, you might forgive them. But if they hurt you really badly, and they never even ask for your forgiveness, it's easy to hold on to that for a long time. Because they don't deserve my forgiveness. They never even ask for my forgiveness. I'll forgive them if they ask. What we don't realize is that by not forgiving, we're actually hurting ourselves. And we're actually causing more damage to ourself than that person caused us. It's not about whether the person deserves it, really. It'd be nice if they did deserve it. It'd be nice if they made up all the wrongs they did against us. It'd be nice if they, apologized. they saw the extent of their wrong, and they tried the rest of their life to pay it back. That'd be nice. But it's not ultimately about that. It's like the song we sang at the end, I'll never know the cost of seeing your son on the cross. Ultimately, it's about the fact that we have to recognize what our sin meant in terms of who God is, his holiness, his righteousness, his plan for our lives, what our sin meant and what it cost God to give us salvation. And then God demands us, if you are receiving his forgiveness, he demands you to give out that forgiveness to others. So he expects us to forgive others because he forgave us, like the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's what it's ultimately about. And if we can't forgive, then we're putting ourselves at risk and we're making ourselves vulnerable. And the enemy is waiting with schemes to devour us. And he'll use that as a way in and cause bitterness and other things to take over our life that unforgiveness begins to weigh on us. And I knew a man who seemed way older than his years because he could not forgive. So here this warning, this final warning from the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. Peter says, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus says, Not seven, but seventy times seven. In other words, forever. The seven number. Eternal Verse 23, he says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with slaves. When he had begun to settle, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he didn't have the money to repay him, the Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. And the lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Not ten thousand, a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have mercy, have patience, I'll repay you but he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he could pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and reported it to their Lord. Then summoning his Lord, said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the name, in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus says, My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So God says to us in that parable, You might not recognize it, but I have forgiven you way more wrongs against me than that person did against you. And if you can't forgive them, that means that you don't know me. You don't know my love. You don't appreciate what I've offered to you. I don't forgive you. That's the warning from God. So yes, there's a time for a severe action to be taken. There's a time for grace, and a time for a harsh word, and a time for forgiveness. It takes wisdom to know the difference, and it takes love to do it right.